Fellas, have you started your spring cleaning yet? The carpets need cleaning, the drapes need dusting, and your lawn needs mowing. Spring has sprung, and the global leaders in below-the-waist grooming have the best tools for cleaning aisle 5 in your pants. Time to clear out your winter brush and join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off, plus free shipping with promo code GWC. Once again, manscaped.com, 20% off and free shipping on everything site-wide with my special promo code GWC. Hello everyone, and welcome back to our ongoing series where we're discovering some incredible projects in and around the history of Canada and of Canadian professional wrestling. As with the flagship program Grappling with Canada, I'm your host, as usual, The Taxman. And I'm really looking forward to my conversation today with author and Portland wrestling historian Mike Rogers. Now, some of you may be wondering... What does a guy from Portland, Oregon have to do with Canadian professional wrestling history? Well, we are going to get into that conversation and a bunch of other fun topics in just a few minutes. But before we get there, if this is your first time to the program, welcome. You can find other specials that I've done in regards to some interesting projects related to Canadian professional wrestling history, as well as all of the flagship shows of Grappling with Canada on this feed that you are listening to this podcast on right now. You can find this program on all major podcasting platforms, whether that be Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever the cool kids call it nowadays, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Good Pods, basically wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcasts. I especially suggest that you steal this podcast, and while you're reaching in with that five-finger discount, please leave a five-star rating and a written review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the discovery of the show. Best part, if you leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, I will make sure that I read it on the next available flagship program of Grappling with Canada. In the show notes of this program today, you will also find ways that you can help donate to this program to keep everything going. Because without you guys, this program would be kind of pointless, I'm, I must admit. So there are ways to uh, d- donate to the program, uh, including the tip function on Good Pods, as well as a direct uh, PayPal link to help with the costs associated with the show. So once again, use the link tree link which you can find in your show notes of today's episode. As well, you can also find the mainstream program, Grappling with Canada, on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash Six-Sided Podcast, where you can find that. Even if you listen to the program on the usual uh, podcast feed, I would highly suggest that you go ahead and hit that subscribe button on YouTube as well, as we are slowly crawling inching, dragging ourselves 
to the thousand subscriber mark on there. So I want to thank everybody for their support in regards to that. So the reason we're all here today, my incredible conversation with Mike Rogers. Now this is in the same vein of some incredible specials that I've been able to uh, bring to you guys in the last couple of months on these uh, special series as we kind of dig into the people and historians behind some Canadian professional wrestling history and some Canadian history as well. Uh, you'll note some specials on the Canadian Wrestling History Archives. Uh, we did a special last month with Vance Nevada and his incredible look at really a deep dive into the results and the actual facts and statistics of Canadian professional wrestling, as well as before that, the incomparable Stephen Bell and his explosive book on the life of the British Bulldogs. If you haven't listened to those, I highly suggest that you go back into the archives and listen to those special episodes. Keeping in with all of that fun stuff, my conversation today with Mike Rogers. Now, we get into a plethora of, or of content today. Listen to me talk. It's early in the program. I'm so fired up. I cannot honestly wait for you guys to listen to this program. It was, a, it was so much fun to talk to Mike. But we get into the Canadian Professional Wrestling Connections with the Portland wrestling scene, to which there are an exorbitant amount, some of which have been covered in previous main topics of Grappling with Canada. We talk about his two available books for purchase, Excitement in the Air, Volumes 1 and 2, featuring a plethora of Canadian talent, and also some names that I was surprised were in the book, and I was very surprised that he was able to have interviews with. More on that in a little bit. We are also going to be hearing, almost for the first time, Mike talking about his brand new upcoming project. I'm going to leave you guys with that scintillating uh, teaser, if you will. And I'm going to let Mike explain all of that, everything that went into Excitement in the Air Volume 1 and 2, and his connection with the Portland wrestling scene, right now. Please enjoy. All right, I'm super pleased to be joined on the line this evening by wrestling historian Mike Rogers. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. All the way from, uh, is it Portland, Oregon? Just outside, I live just outside of Portland, yes. Obviously one of the most notable wrestling territories in professional wrestling history, one where uh, many Canadians have gone through over the years, which is a little topic that we're going to discuss in a few minutes regarding a few of the projects that you've been working on throughout the years. But before we get into all that, let's get a little bit of background about yourself and uh, your relationship with the Portland wrestling scene. Sure. Um, in 1983, I started a wrestling bulletin called Ring Around the Northwest. And it was just a, a small local bulletin. And, uh, 1983, I'm doing it on a typewriter. Um, and we, we got into, uh, into the 90s and, and computers started coming out. And <laughs> I started to include uh, interviews in my bulletin. Before it had just been three pages of just the monthly news in, in the Portland area. And uh, Scott Teal, uh, who's a historian and has some a number of books out, he used to also do a bulletin called Whatever Happened To. Yes, that's right. And in that, in that bulletin, he would print 
uh, the wrestlers' names and addresses and, and phone numbers. And essentially it was sent out to the boys and they could get back in contact with each other. And But I utilized the addresses and, and phone numbers and I was able to start kind of, that's kind of how I started uh, getting some interviews. And that's kind of the early iteration of, of what ended up uh, kind of leading to the books, I assume, right? Is is the love of the newsletters kind of translated? I guess you never really lose that that feeling almost, that 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 willingness to go out and, and learn some things and interview some people and get some knowledge about what has happened in uh, in your particular area of interest. Right, exactly. Well, the bulletin went for 30 years to about 2013. And I had probably over 100 interviews. And some of them are, are just the local book guys who are, who are working um, in the Northwest, even after Don Owen and um, the Portland promoter had, had retired. Um, so some of the some of the guys were no one else outside of the Northwest would be familiar with. But I had quite the number of interviews with with uh, top top stars. Um, I had Don Leo Jonathan and Lou Fez and and Mad Dog Rashawn and Ivan Koloff and just just a number of really, you know. Well, we've got two books and a third one coming out on on just these interviews. Now, for yourself, because, you know, obviously you have the background with the newsletters, but you also have the wrestling background as well. So you kind of get ideas and you kind of get this perception that many of us, myself specifically speaking, don't have of how how it kind of is on both sides of the business. So I've... What? Go ahead, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm sorry. I, I never wrestled, but I did referee. Yes, and I that's... refereed for for about four or five years, and I I was lucky enough to be in the ring with Ricky Morton, George Steele, uh, Earthquake, uh, Virgil, uh, Tito Santana, Buddy Rose. You know, a, a number of and a lot of those guys were um, shows that Jerry Gray had promoted, and uh, I, I worked a lot of or just around the Northwest for about four or five years. Yes, which naturally would then give you more of a, more of an insight a little bit, rather than somebody from completely outside of wrestling who would try and, uh, let's say, hop on a project such as, as the ones you have done, or even, you know, get into the newsletter side of things, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, with, you know, uh, we'll say limited to no uh, experience of how things are behind the curtain. So I, right. it, I, it, I, it, it was, it really opened your eyes when, uh, you know, you, you, you're sitting in the front row as a fan and then one day you're actually climbing into the ring and, and seeing it from that perspective. You're right. It is quite the, quite the difference. And in terms of, so, so naturally where I'm going to jump timelines a little bit here, but I, I find it fascinating the, the kind of progression that you've taken, uh, throughout the years here. So when you started the newsletter, how big was your base and how did, how did people find you in the newsletter? Because this is back at the time where 
it was essentially, you know, and I've heard many people talk about this, whether it's uh, Dr. Mike Leno or or it's Jim Cornette or people like that who had were running uh, newsletters. It was just a just a community. People would you know mail you their address or whatever. You would send them off whatever clippings you had, and it was kind of this. Uh, tight knit community. What was your experience oh, like with with the newsletter portion of it? Yeah, it it started um, probably in in 1974. I wrote to Tom Burke, and Tom Burke had a, a fan club section in Ring Wrestling. Yes, and I, you know, it was just like I'd like to trade results and pictures and programs, and and then you, yeah, you got the base of of that community, people writing to you and and pen pals and, and trading trading things. And in 83, when I started my bulletin, then you start trading bulletins or asking them to please plug, plug the bulletin. And, and when I started out, it was 50 cents. And uh, later on, when we went to, went to uh, 10 pages, I, it bumped it up to a dollar. But obviously, it was never a money-making proposition. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, most most historical things like like that and like this are not. It it's definitely <laughs> the epitome of a passion project is uh is the best way that I could describe it. Well, it was, it was funny. I you know I obviously really enjoyed it to keep doing it for thirty years. Um, then right right around two thousand thirteen, I I took my bulletin in and and uh, I went to the local place where I had it printed and. And uh, they always had self-service printers and everything. And, and I walk in and the, the self-service printers are gone. And they say, we've, we've raised our price to 13 cents a copy. Ooh. And 10 pages at 13 cents yeah. is $1.30. And my, my, this is in 2013 and the, you know, internet's way more popular than snail mail bulletin <laughs> and everything. And I, and uh, it's like okay, it's now a dollar thirty to print it plus postage, uh, you know. And, and I'm losing losing subscribers at at even a dollar. I go well, I'll make it thirty years, and may, maybe it's time to, to call it quits. <laughs> so after you called it quits from the from the newsletter side of it, did you lose the passion? at that point or, or, or was this always something kind of gnawing at you and, and that's kind of what pushed you in the direction of, of, and you know, ended up doing the uh, volumes of books. I, I never lost the passion for learning and, and uh, historical aspect of wrestling. I, I did lose the passion of going to shows as they are currently. Yes. I did lose that. And I, and attendance of, of shows was, has been pretty sporadic the last last 10 years. When I was doing the bulletin, it would be at least once a month, if not more. Um, but yeah, I, I it just got to a point where, you know, I'd just rather be staying home and watching TV than checking out and driving to a show. That and I, I assume at that point, you know, a lot of... Although, mind you, and this is a topic that we'll discuss uh, when we when we talk about the books, a, a lot of your subject matters in the bulletins. Obviously, a lot of those wrestlers have either moved on, you know, well past that point, or now you're you're kind of getting into the new crop of 
of uh, wrestlers. But again, if, if it's hard when you, and even I find this, to uh, have the motivation to almost stay current with a lot of the current talent. Not to say that they're, you know, not good or anything like that. But yeah, I find with myself, even the more that I'm getting into the historical side of everything, the less I am almost inclined to keep up with the current talent. I'm not sure if you ever felt the same way. Yeah, it, uh, one time I was writing to a show with, with the referee, Mark Watson, who's ref for years and years in the Northwest, and we had we had that. He was still going to ref, and I was going to watch a show, and um, I said, do you ever feel like we are outgrowing it? And he goes, oh, feel like I'm about done with, with the local product, you know, with, with being a referee and and everything and and it's like it doesn't mean you've lost your passion for for wrestling overall it's just uh, you know that almost that when i was doing the bulletin i i always wanted to go but it was i felt like it was almost a responsibility to go yes like oh i, I need to go you know if i'm going to do a bulletin and and pretend like i'm the expert on the northwest <laughs> I should go to some shows. and uh, then when i stopped the bulletin i you know i I didn't go as, to as many shows. Maybe that's where I get a pass is I'm nowhere near an expert, so I think I can fly under the radar a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> so how long after you, you know, had shut down shop with, with the newsletter, how long was it after that until you started to get the germ of the idea for, for the uh, volumes of book, two of which that we're going to discuss right away? Um, I had a, a, a subscriber way way back when I was doing the bulletin, who urged me to, and he was going to help me, uh, uh, you know, make a book, and we we were going to do it, uh, include the interviews, and and uh, anyway, we we had talked a little bit about it, and then he had some health problems and just kind of drop needed to drop out of the project, and. I had talked to Scott Teal um, a few times, and he was excited about doing that. And then he also just has kind of backed off on a lot of his projects. And so the interviews are sitting there, and, and always in the back of my mind, I knew that was a possibility, and, and I feel like the interviews are really good. And then this past um, summer, just this past summer, I was having a lunch with, with a really good friend of mine, Frank Colbertson, who had done some announcing and some promoting in, in the Northwest. And uh, he said, you know, you really should do a book. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. And he goes, no, you should really do a book. He goes, and I will help. And uh, I go, okay. You know, and, and uh, I go, the interviews are sitting there. And he goes, well, he goes, I'll, I'll help edit, and uh, we'll get in touch with, you know, someone who knows a little bit more. And so we got in touch with John Cosper, and uh, he's made the process very, very easy. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So uh, naturally, I think we can drop the pretense now, the, the two volumes that we're talking about are volumes one and two of Excitement in the Air, which, as you describe, are 
uh, almost a uh, collaboration, if, if that's the proper word to use, of the interviews that you've conducted over the years in regards to the Portland wrestling scene. Um, when you started these s- series of books, we'll say, did you envision this as being a series or did you envision, okay, I'm going to do one book and was there enough meat on the bone for two? Is that why it was in two volumes or what was your idea there? Um, at the start, it was just like, there's a lot of interviews. There's a lot of, <laughs> of good interviews. And, and we were talking, I go, do we front load and put the best ones in the, in the first one? And then the second one, just to be honest, isn't as, as good. And then, and then we started to kind of divvy them up and tried to make it uh, fairly equal. And honestly, this, I feel like the second one is just as compelling as the first one. Um, the first one may have a little bit higher star quality. There's Luthez, uh, Don Leo Jonathan, Dutch Savage is really, really big in the Northwest, Bull Ramos, um, uh, Dory Funk is in uh, the first one, Dory Funk Jr., um, Stan Stasiak, a lot of guys, and all, a lot of these guys are, you know, germane to the Northwest. We also wanted to uh, put a few people who are still involved in wrestling now. So we have Brian Danielson and we have Kyle O'Reilly. Uh, they're, in, they're in this first volume as well. Brian Alvarez, who's a good friend as well. Um, I think there's 27 interviews in the first one. Yes, to say that it's uh, it's a good potpourri, and it's interesting the, the the point you made about you know oh is it a little bit more star power in the first one than the second one? We'll get into the second one in a little bit, but it's I understand your point entirely about you know should we front load this thing? But then if you front load it with all all the big name quote unquote talent, then would anyone be interested in a, in a second volume? And then it's then it's it, it's the book equivalent of hot shot booking, if you will. If you if you're exactly. yeah, so <laughs> exactly. I a hundred percent I agree with I really with your idea. That, um, um, the second one, like I mentioned, is just as compelling. Another thing that I really learned as I started interviewing people is just if they're a big name, you want to hear from them, but just because they're a big name doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to be a great interview. Yes. And and at the same time, uh, a wrestler who's, you know, been in mid-cards or preliminaries all their career, they could have a lot to say, you know, and, and be a great interview. So just because they're, they're have been a big star in wrestling doesn't guarantee that the interview is going to, is going to be great and, and vice versa. And then the the other part of it is, you know, how how much of it is the protection aspect, right? right. It, it, it's it's something that you know we try very hard, like on my program, for example, of you know, who, okay, it's all well and good, you know, kayfabe. I understand and I can appreciate it, but when you're trying to really learn about somebody and you got to kind of cut through the noise, you know, sometimes the the person isn't the best source of information, if you will. Uh, it's exactly. so I, I completely understand what what you're talking about there in, in terms of, you know, just because someone is 
a quote-unquote a star doesn't mean you're going to get a star interview out of them. Exactly. Um, and, and it's really interesting how the interviews get set up. To be honest, I'd rather email someone the, the questions, and I feel like then I'm not bothering them, yeah. and then they can answer <laughs> it on their leisure. Yes. But uh, to be honest, a lot of the wrestlers, you know, perhaps they don't know how to type, and if they don't know how to type, then their answers become very you know, very short. Um, the best interviews have always been on the phone, and I'm always, you know, you're nervous when you're calling up Lou yeah, Ted 100%. Or, or Don Leo Jonathan. And um, I, I try never to call anybody cold, you know, let them know and, and maybe set up a, a time where they have the time and, and they're, you know, really ready to sit down and, and visit. I had one interview that was completely cold and, and, this is how it was set up. Sandy Barr promoted wrestling after Don Owen. And I think Stan Stasiak was a little down on his luck uh, towards the end of, end of his life. And Sandy had him on a hotline. And you could just call up Stan Stasiak and, and talk to him, ask him questions and talk to him. So I prepared an interview and, and you know, we're starting our, our conversation, and I explained to him that I'd, I'd like to do a little interview with him, and we're visiting, and you and you kind of, you know, start off, and you're getting the the feel of it, it how it how it perhaps it's going to go, and how honest and how open the wrestler is going to be. Yes. And uh, I I had one question that I really really wanted to know from Stasia, and I, I saved it towards the end, and and I said. My question was, uh, how much time did they let you know when you were going to win, the, you were going to beat uh, Pedro and win the title, and what were the circumstances, you know, surrounding that? You know, I'm hoping, did they just let him know that night, you know? Did he know he was going to be the trans transitory champion? And I, so I asked that question, and then there, there's the pause. <laughs> and he goes, well, I won it. And it's like, oh, oh gone it, you know. It's yeah. Like, oh, okay, you know, and you appreciate it and you understand. But, but it's like, oh, I really would love to know the answer to that question. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it that's always the uh, the double-edged sword of the the last question, you know, phase of an interview, eh, where you're trying to get, I just want to get this one tidbit, but you're never going to, you know, you can't lead off with that one. That probably killed the interview. So it's, exactly. so you you exactly. run the, you run the fine line of, will it get answered? But if I don't try, then you never know. So <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know, I, if there's anything that I can, a little tidbit or, or something that I can start with that helps make a connection. And here, here's an example. Um, when my, my wife, when she was a young girl, she played with Bull Ramos' daughter. Oh, cool. And so I'm making a connection with Bull Ramos, and I said, you know, my wife played with your daughter when they were little. And, you know, something like that gives you that connection. And, uh, uh, Bull Ramos ended up, I had, I had set aside two hours to talk to Bull Ramos, and then I had an appointment. I had to take my dog to the vet. And I'd never done an interview that was two hours long. <laughs> you know, that's going to be plenty of time. 
And Bull Ramos was so giving with his time, with his stories. I'm kind of done with the interview, and he's like, come on, ask me some more. This is, you know, he yeah. was enjoying himself. <laughs> he was having a, a lot of fun and telling great stories. And uh, finally it got to the point where it's like, oh, I, you know, I'm sorry, I have to go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, call me back another time. And I kick myself now. You know, I never, never called him back. And there's so many things, you know, you think of after the fact that yep. I wish I would have asked that or I wish I would have learned about, you know, this scenario or, you know. And uh, But I, I really find that if you can make that somehow, some little connection, another, another good example in the mid-90s, I was at Cauliflower Alley, and it was in Los Angeles at the time. And Gene Kaninsky and John Tolos, were, they stepped outside and they're walking around. And I'm just tagging along and listening to their conversation. And there was a couple people that were, were tagging along. And John Tolos is just ribbing Kaninsky endlessly. <laughs> and Kaninsky's just no-selling it. He's just no-selling it all. Tolos, like, would look at me. He didn't know who I was. I was just following along, and he's giggling because he's just ribbing Kaninsky. And we wandered around a little bit, and we're, we're standing there, and suddenly there's an earthquake. Oh, geez. And, uh, you know, I just could feel the the earth rolling and stuff and John Tolos lived in Southern California. He'd been through through lots and, and he goes, Oh, this is a good one you know, and, and <laughs> so now we fast forward ten, fifteen years and, and I'm like I'm like, you know, got a hold of him and I said, Do you remember that earthquake in in Colasar Alley? I go, I was the guy that was standing next to you during the earthquake. <laughs> and, you know, he did a great job of, of an interview. And uh, I think it was that, you know, people were surprised. They said, oh, and Tolos didn't open up 100%, but it was still a really good interview. Yes. And uh, I think he might have had my favorite question towards the end. I saved it towards the end. And I said, John, I just, just have one more question. He goes, okay. How do you spell wrestling? And he goes, oh, my, you know, he's just going <laughs> to laugh. He goes, oh, my boy. He goes, you do it. I go, no, no, you have to do it. Yeah, you got to have him do it. (laughs) That's so good. Oh, my God. He was was such a a funny man, and and, uh, um, I really enjoyed talking to him. It's interesting, too, you know, the the cast of characters, we'll say, in in the first book, and, and you know, we'll touch on... Some more of the Canadian content in in that book specifically, and then we'll get into book two after. But there was one name that's on that book who spent quite a bit of time in Canada as well. But one person who I've just been fascinated with learning about over the years, and that is Pampiro Furpo. Now oh, I yeah. got I gotta hear yeah. about what your interview was like with him. Well, I had met him at Cauliflower Alley. And uh, he was clean-shaven and a very handsome man. And uh, uh, we arranged to do an interview on, on the phone. And uh, I, I, he was hard to understand. And I, luckily, you know, I had recorded it. And even 
even listening back on the recording, it was it was hard to understand. It took a lot of editing and stuff, but yeah, he was such an intelligent person, so intelligent and so um, just a good, genuine person. Um, so I remember one story he was telling um, uh, some promoter and uh, uh, was telling him, I have this amount of money now. I'm very successful. And, and he goes, that's good. He goes, that's very good for you. And he said, I'd see him five years later. And, and uh, you know, I am even more successful now. And, and Pompero would say, very good for you. And, and then it was like, he said some little bit of wisdom that was like, how much will you need until you are happy or, or finished or something along those lines, yes. you know, meaning that all the success you have, are you happy, you know? And, and uh, I found him to be just so interesting and, and uh, so educated and, and just a real, it's a, it's a, to be honest, it's a hard interview to read, but uh, um, if you can step through the, the, language barriers he just did a great job yes because uh he's from austria originally if i'm not mistaken um argentina I argentina sorry yes my apologies that's that's correct yeah yeah and uh i i think uh i've heard his um uh, children speak on interviews before and they are equally as as educated and well-spoken yes i i don't remember what show it was, but I had heard an interview with his daughter. I want to say her name is Wendy. And I so, yeah. yeah, and just a sweetheart too. You 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 know exactly where she gets it from, and you know she was talking just in reverence of you know scrapbooking with Vampiro Furpo, and you know just stories like that. You know you you hear all these wild stories of. Of wrestlers, you know, they tear it up in the ring, and then they tear it up at the bar after, and and you know, it's craziness and it's madness, and then, you know, here's a guy like you know, Pampiro just he goes to his hotel room and he's he's scrapbooking for for a hobby. Yeah, yes, yeah, just a genuine person, and I I love the the story or the idea. He went to work at the post post office after his wrestling career, and I. You know, you hear the rumors that he was Dave Meltzer's mailman, and I love that. I hope it's <laughs> true. <you know? laughs> Even if it's not, just the thought of that is hilarious. <laughs> so, you know, I could I could go on and on and on about uh, Pampiro Furpo, but we should probably should talk about uh, some of the Canadian talent that's featured in Volume One because. Obviously, people know, or you know, many wrestling fans. Obviously, we have a we have a quite large audience who you know aren't wrestling fans, but they love the Canadian history portion of it. So it's interesting. Sure. It's you know how these people from you know essentially all walks of life and all areas and climates, both you know temperature wise and political wise, wind up in Portland at one time or another, and some of the Notable ones from from the first book, like you had mentioned, uh, Don Leo Jonathan. You mentioned uh, Stan Stasiak. Uh, obviously, you know there you had some newer ones as well. Uh, Kyle Riley's in that book, I believe. 
yeah. uh, Michelle Starr, Dr. Luther, a lot of AEW fans would, would be familiar with him. But it, it's yeah. it's interesting, like this is where your earlier comment, you know, way at the start of our, our conversation is regarding having, you know, some current talent and some and some older talent. In terms of your not I don't want to say interview style because I don't think that that's an appropriate term to use right now, but in terms of how you approach the interview, did you approach the newer generation of talent any different than you did the older generation of talent? Not, not I'm going to say not really because it's um, I always try to make make a contact before, and then when they agree, I'll do my research and then try to get back to them if it's either by email or or a phone conversation. Um, Don Leo, I'll step back for a moment. Dean Silverstone, who was an uh, officer in Cauliflower Alley and also promoted up in the Seattle area in the early 70s, he had some reunions, and he would invite he would invite anybody, even if you didn't work in the in the Northwest. But um, he would have turnouts equivalent to Cauliflower Alley just at his house. Wow, it was really a it was really a closed event. I had written to Dean and, and tried to invite myself the very first year, and, and he uh, very kindly said, "No, this is kind of a closed event." And uh, uh, luckily, I I didn't burn that bridge. I said, "Well, if, if things change, I'd love you know." And the next year, I got an invitation, and went up and. This, this is my memory of, I, I was able to go six, seven, eight years, but the very first time I knocked on the door and someone just shouted, come in, and I, I opened the door, and I looked to my left, and I see Don Leo Jonathan and Dean Hanbucci, they're visiting. I look to my right, and I see Ivan Koloff and Johnny Valentine. Wow. And the entire house is just filled with that caliber of, of wrestler and, and it was just, you know, unbelievable. And so I was lucky enough to make a lot of connections at, at Dean's because it's, it's literally two days of just standing around and listening to stories. And it, it was unbelievable. It was just, you know, what you, what the highlight of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, as a, historian you must have just been salivating eh? because it's you almost can't you almost can't focus on one thing you know enough right because you're always like you know what else am i missing or who else can i talk to or what else can i get into or you know it's it's almost like a sensory overload exactly it's i I can remember this you'd be in a circle and just you know i'm just listening i'm just listening to these stories and there'd be another circle dean dean lives in this beautiful house on on uh, Lake Sammamish, so everybody would kind of wander, they just wandered throughout the house and in the backyard that bordered on this beautiful lake. And so I'm in a circle of wrestlers and I'm listening to the, to the stories in this circle, and right to my back is another circle, you know, behind me, and I'm trying to listen to their conversations <laughs> and their stories as well. It, it was, exactly, you described it perfectly, it was, I... I, when I'd leave, I'd go home and, and or go to my motel because it was a two-day event, and I'd pull out my notebook and just start writing all those stories that, that I could remember and, and write, try to 
cap, you know, remember every single person that was there at the, at the reunions. <laughs> Which I'm sure you try as you might, you're you're bound to miss something, and then that, that's always one of the things where it's you almost kick yourself after a is is uh, did I get it? I'm sure I got as much as you. You're like, did I squeeze that orange for every little bit of juice that I possibly could get out of it? Eh? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So in terms of, of um, you know, you're, you're thinking about the book, you're, you compile everything, you know, Excitement in the Air, Volume 1 is kind of in, in, in the works, we'll say, and you have your, your interviews kind of conducted and you're, and you're doing your research portion. Were you surprised that there were many, as many Canadians that went through that territory as, as I was surprised to find out after? Well... You know, a lot of times people will say, wrestlers will say, the territories on the West Coast are kind of isolated. Um, you know, if you're in the central part of the country, you have, you know, four different ways you can go once you're leaving a territory. Yes. But when you're in Portland, you know, unless you're, you know, if you want to just kind of not make that big of a move, you have Vancouver and, you know, vice versa. And Don Owen worked hand-in-hand uh, hand with um, Sandra Kovacs and Gene Kaminsky who were the promoters in Vancouver. And so it would be like, I need a couple guys just to fill in. Can you send, you know, two guys down? There really was not very often, a couple instances, but not very often where you had a headliner for Vancouver come down and be a headliner in Portland. And I'm not really sure why. Interesting. Um, uh, vice versa, you had Bugsy McGraw, who wrestled in Portland as the Skull, and then he went up to Vancouver and wrestled as the Brute. And he actually had a better run in Vancouver than he did in Portland. Um, and also, uh, vice versa, Stephen Little Bear. Stephen Little Bear wrestled first in Vancouver, had a very successful run, and then came down to Portland and had a successful run. But you would always have that trading back and forth. So, yes, you did have a lot of guys who um, were in Vancouver and, and, you know, were Canadian. They'd come down and, and uh, work in Portland. It's interesting then, like, in terms of somebody like John Tolos, who was obviously huge on, on the West Coast, like Californians and specifically L.A., I believe, how would how did he figure in there? Did he go from L.A. to Portland, or, or how, what was that transition like? Um, in his interviews, you know, we talked a little bit about because he, he made a lot of over the years kind of sporadic um, appearances in Portland. He, I think, at one point he held the, the Northwest, the Portland version of the tag title. Yes, for a short time with Tony Bourne. But he said it, Vancouver was always his base, and he enjoyed coming down to Portland and working, you know, the, a preliminary, and then just, just going back. He, he liked that trip. He liked working in Portland. Um, but it was very sporadic over the years. He would just show up. A lot of times he'd be on a card and not have an interview, not being figured into the main events. Um, yeah, kind of a a unique situation, you know, everybody knows how talented he was, but he uh, just didn't, wasn't in main events in Portland that much. 
But is it? It is interesting the the point you make. How it's just because you were a star in like all star wrestling, for example, didn't necessarily mean that you were going to be the the marquee billing star in Portland. I I think that's an interesting point to make because you know you you would think that and wrongly so that an established you know the headline star from promotion X would go to whichever other one and just you know and get inserted right away into the top spot and that's obviously that's a bit of the modern way of thinking i think rather than how it used to be of you know the talent come in you know gets built up and and then you get your main event out of that uh, in the long run right and now that i think about it perhaps one of the reasons is a lot of the times especially in the you know the 70s a wrestler like John Quinn or Mark Lewin would come to Portland for, from Vancouver. And they're just in to kind of spruce up the cards, filling in, and and they're not coming in to stay, you know, an extended stay in the territory. So since they're making that appearance, they're probably putting over the established stars in, in Portland and giving, to giving, help giving them a push. So that may hinder when it's time to leave Vancouver, maybe they don't want to go to Portland because the Portland fans have already seen them yes. lose, you know, and, and it, it's hard to make that first impression over again. Yeah, that's, that's true too. And I, perhaps I didn't think about that portion of it is, uh, although, although it, the territories were separated by, what is that? Like a Three, but it's yeah, it, it's three hundred miles or so. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a um, long distance between, but it's not you know it's not insurmountable for fans who want to see you know kind of both sets of 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 each promotion. So it does make sense that yeah, somebody wouldn't want to get you know specifically killed in one promotion and try and and make a make a big go of it at the other one. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now we've been kind of focusing on on volume one, although my Tolis conversation kind of takes us into volume two, and this is where, you know, I understand your point about you know some of the big name stars like you know like Luthez, uh, like Stasiak, like John Don Lula Jonathan was in the first book, but the second book saw some heavy hitters too, and there were a couple that I wanted to kind of key in on with you. One is. John Tullis, obviously, we just discussed him, but Rick Martell is somebody who is just an absolutely fascinating person in, in the wrestling industry because, you know, he was a big star for the AWA. He he was a, a star for the WWF, star in Portland as well, and we'll get into that in a second, but he's somebody who, you know, when when he was done with wrestling, he was done and didn't do any interviews, didn't, didn't really have any... Uh, anything to do with it for a number of years. And it's just very recently that he's kind of come back into, you know, even doing conventions and things like that. How was it for yourself getting a hold of Rick Martell and how did that all come together? If I remember right, I had done an interview with Lanny Poffo. And Lanny Poffo and Rick Martell are, are good friends. And somehow... I, I, you know, I really can't remember how I made that initial initial connection with Rick, but um, I, I'm betting it was through Lanny Poffo. And he did a very good job um, 
And I remember at the end of the interview, I, I just said, you did a great job. You know, you, you told the stories, really did a good job. And he, and he, he stopped for a moment and he goes, hey, Mike, this was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I think, you know, if you can tap into, do the research and tap in. We talked a lot about Maritimes and when he started. He started with his brother and, he, you know, he went to Calgary and, and that was the start of his career. And, you know, if, if he's taking the time to, to tell the story and he can see that, you know, you, you've done a little bit of your research and, and you understand where he's been in his career, I think that helps with them opening up a little yes. bit too. I felt like he, he did a really, really good job. Um, you know, we, we, we focused on Canada, those early territories, and then Hawaii, and then, and then Portland. I'd have to check. I don't think we really talked too much about after he left Portland, um, you know, and, and went to WWE and, and even AWA. Uh, we pretty much, in that one, were focusing on, on, uh, the early part of his career. Now, another Canadian from the Maritimes who you had in that book as well it was uh, Don Jardine. Um, I mean, oh, I, I I gotta know how that one came together. That was definitely from uh, a Scott Teal. Whatever happened to them now? Yeah. And <laughs> that interview is interesting and memorable because he was salty. He was <laughs> yeah, from every every story that I've heard about um, him, that's ex- that is the one common thread. <laughs> <laughs> As I would, it, that one is somewhat of a short interview, um, but as I would ask him of the different people that he he'd worked with, um, you know, he he was a tag partner of, with Dutch Savage. And and we can get into Dutch Savage. That's that's a whole yeah. Let's whole let's yeah. Let's circle back but, to him. Um, he was he was tag partners with Savage, and I I mentioned him, and and you know they, I think they kind of look alike. And I, I said, were well, your styles the same? And he answered something like, I hope not. That sob. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know he was just kind of bad mouth, or or you know. Maybe he's teasing. He goes, "Oh, that guy was a crowbar," and, and you know, <laughs> more than not, he was like, um, kind of ranking on his peers. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that that sounds exactly like everything I've I've heard from other people in regards to. Well, I guess he was called the spoiler after all, so I guess that kind of fits with the character. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, there's one point where, uh, uh, you know, we were talking about. You know, I mentioned out a, diff- a bunch of different names, and and even at that time, a lot of the wrestlers that I was mentioning passed, and and uh, you know, it, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it, it it went to the line that you know he was very sorry that a lot of his contemporaries had passed. Which again, that kind of also as, as fun as it is for him being salty, it still seems like he has the respect at least for for his peers and, and that aspect of uh, the brotherhood of wrestling, if, if that's a, the proper way to say it. Yes. Yes. Um, oh my gosh. I'm remembering one thing I probably have to say. Uh, I asked, he was, he was in Vancouver when Gene Kaninsky was world's champ. So my, my question was, 
when Kaninsky came into the territory, even as NWA champ, you know, did he did he command the attention? Did he did he command respect? Um, and Dardine would say something like, "Oh, he looks horrible. His white saggy skin. He looks like a prisoner of war. No, it's just, just so stiff." <laughs> Yeah, Kaniski was never uh he was never a body guy, we'll say that, but a hell of a hell of a yeah. hell of a wrestler regardless of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, we got to circle back now cuz I have to know <laughs> the Dutch Savage story. We got to get into that. Well, Dutch Dutch is a hard hard person to get along with. Um, you know, as as I We'll ask people who've been in the Northwest, um, you know, did you get along with Dutch? And, and you know, they, most of them would say, no, Dutch was hard to get along with. But there's a common thread. I'll ask somebody, I asked Tim Brooks, I said, did you get along with Dutch? And it was like, I got along with Dutch. We made a lot of money together. And when, when, and same with Bull Ramos. Bull Ramos and Dutch were, were good friends. And it's, we made a lot of money together. And they, they were friends as well. But that's the thread when people don't mind Dutch. They always made a lot of money with Dutch. <laughs> um, I, I, when I was 14, and I tell this story in my new book, but when I was 14, Dutch would, and I lived in a, a town called Seaside on the coast. Dutch would do these interviews on Saturday night, and usually Seaside was Monday night. He'd say something like, I'm going to be in Seaside on Monday, and boy, wouldn't it be nice if a fan brought me some salmon from Seaside? And, and I, as I'm telling this story, I spruced it up a little bit, because uh, boy, that piece of salmon would help me beat Moramus on Monday night. And it's like, I said, Mom, we have to bring that savage some salmon. And so... I did. We went out and got some salmon and took it to Dutch, and he was very kind and, and happy. And I had asked, the only thing that I asked was, will you write to me? And uh, his wife wife wrote to me, thank, thank me for the salmon, and gave me two two tickets to Portland Wrestling. And I had never, you know, I was 14. I'd never been to Portland Wrestling in Portland, but been to yeah. Wrestling in Seaside. Um and then, so now we can fast forward, you know, many years later, and it's like, I gave you salmon in Seaside when I was, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago. And um, so when I went to do my interview with Dutch, Dutch was, um, he opened up, he told lots of good stories. It's a very, very good interview. And when we were finished, I'm, I'm not sure what what he was thinking, but we're finished. He goes, you know, you can't use this. What? And I'm like, I'm like, you know, and I, I don't argue with him, but it's like, it's like, oh, that was great. You know, do you, what do you think we were doing? You know, <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. So I didn't use it. I held on. I held on to it for like 12 years wow. until he passed. And then I used it. <laughs> but, um, and he was very, very open and very told lots of good stories. He was a little faulty too. Um, 
So here's another really interesting part. Dutch, Dutch Dean Silverstone, who I mentioned had reunions, he was kind of an outlaw promoter. And many times Vancouver would run Seattle, and a lot of times Portland. Seattle was exactly in between Vancouver and Portland. And a lot of times Portland would run Seattle. And then there was a portion of time where Seattle was completely dark. Yes. And when it was dark, Dean Silverstone started promoting there. And Dean had, had worked previously for both Don Owen and um, the Vancouver office. He was very good friends with Harry Elliott, who who promoted Washington and Seattle and worked for both both offices. And Dean tried to get into, you know, be the Seattle promoter working with in conjunction with the two offices. And they turned him down. And so he opened up his own outlaw promotion and, and you know, that didn't set well with anybody in the two established offices. So now we fast forward many years, Dean has these reunions. He always invites Kaminsky and he always invites Savage. And then the very last um, very last reunion that Dean had Dutch came, and, you know, I'm visiting with him a little bit, and I don't think we had done the interview yet at that time, um, but I'm sitting there, and Dean would always give out awards to wrestlers, and, and, you know, he had a little, what he called the Northwest Hall of Fame, and now, I remember I mentioned the Dutch and, and Dean, even though Dean was being a wonderful host. There was a lot of history in there. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sitting there now, you know, this is the first time that Dutch has been, and I kind of glance around, and I think that almost everybody else that was there, it, it wasn't as big of a turnout here as his, his last year. So I'm thinking, like, oh, Dutch will get an award for the Hall of Fame. And uh, so Dean gets ready to make these little little presentation, and he, he calls me up, and I'm thinking, like, I'm going to hold some papers for him or or do something, and he, he gives me the award, and I, I, you know, I'm very honored and very happy, and I'm like, you know, it, it took me a few months later, I go, oh, Dean got the last dig in, after yeah. all, <laughs> because I can only imagine Dutch thinking, like, what's this kid getting this yeah. award for him? who gave me a salmon 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, why, why should he be getting that award? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I laugh. I think that Dean got got the final dig. He got the one-up. <laughs> oh, that's too fun. That's so good. Now, before we uh, we talk about the upcoming project, there is one one thing I wanted to ask you before you know we, we move on to uh, to the new project. And in, it's in regards to what was the most surprising aspect or the most surprising interview that you had had between uh, Volumes 1 and Volume 2 of Excitement in the Air. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, three different interviews that are in Volume 2. And they're, they very well may be with people you, you're not very familiar with at all. I'll, I'll start with Pat Brady. Pat Brady started in Calgary. He worked in the Maritimes. He worked in Vancouver, pretty much all preliminary. And he worked in uh, Portland just for a, a very couple months. 
that lady is one of the most intelligent, um, honest, and interesting people that I've ever met. Um, you know, and obviously not that big of a name. Uh, Pat Brady, in his, he was in Vancouver working for Tim Flowers, and I was refing a series of matches. You know, we haven't mentioned Ed Moondog Moretti, who's one of my best friends, and he has interviews in one, two, and and he, he did some of the best best interviews. But I rode up with, with Ed and was wrecking some of these matches. And Pat Brady, in just a horrible schmoz at the end, totally, he comes to run to the ring to interfere, totally blows out his ACL. Oh. And he's laying in the ring, and, and he kind of grabs on to me. I'm wrestling. And every, everybody else at that point was out of the ring. And he just grabs grabs onto me. He goes, I've blown out my knee. Don't let anybody touch me. And I said, Pat, I won't. I won't let anybody touch you. And and uh, so he's laying there. So we have, you know, that little bit of a, a connection, you know, that that unfortunate event happened. And, and I love that Pat Brady now is he's totally off the grid, you know, and, and um he will come in, my understanding is he comes into town and checks his email like once a week at the library. <laughs> and uh, I, I told him, I said, I emailed him and, and I heard back from him like a couple weeks later. You know, I said, your interview is going to be in in this second issue, second volume. And he goes, well, you know, he's very appreciative and, and you know, he, he didn't, wouldn't focus on himself. It was, he said, I remember all those interviews you did. And, you know, always so interesting. And, you know, that's, that's the type of person that, that Pat Brady is. He told some good stories, some good ribs, but just literally one of the most intelligent people that, that I've ever met anywhere, not just in wrestling. But um, the next person that I'll talk about, again, is not, not a very well-known wrestler outside of British Columbia, and that's Adam Firestone. And his real name was Adam Dykes. And he also wrestled as Torch. And I, I'm curious, are, are you familiar with Adam? I'm not, no. It doesn't ring a bell. He he came down and, and wrestled uh, for Portland Wrestling. And um, there's been a lot after Don Owens has left, but one iteration of, of Portland Wrestling. And um, I became pretty good friends with Adam. In the interview, and it's one of my earliest, earliest interviews, and ECCW was, at the time that they started, were, they were a little bit hardcore. Um, and Adam was all involved in, in that. And in his interview, we were, we were talking, and I, I asked him about a particular match. And he kind of laughed and, and said, you know, I, I don't remember too much from that match. It turns out I had a concussion. And, Jeez. you know, we talked a, a little bit more about injuries and, and he, you know, had listed a couple of injuries, and, and he, he mentioned, uh, and then the concussions. I've had, you know, quite a few concussions, and, and I've kind of, kind of lost track. And, you know, we, we kind of laughed that off and stuff. And, and Adam was always happy and upbeat and 
just a, a great person. And then I'm, I'm very, very sad to, to tell, tell you that he committed suicide at some point, probably in the early, early 2000s. And, you know, I, we sit back and, and we read about the number of concussions that he kind of laughed about. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes that story, story really, really sad. Yeah, it's it's um, it's crazy what we know now about head traumas is specifically. It's uh, exactly. boy, you you look at some of the things that guys went through, you even leading up to you know ten fifteen years ago when we still really didn't know anything comparatively speaking, and oh, there's there's some hard things to watch, and yeah, you and I've been in that position too. You know, I had to. Uh, you know, get out of uh, uh, contact hockey because of concussions. So it, it's that one hits home for me for sure. And it's yeah. th- there's yeah. you know it's sad, you know, and you know people like him. And I'm glad that for that, if not if for no other reason that that his story is in the book as well, um, to at least you know kind of share that aspect of it that I think gets a little even still today gets overlooked quite a bit. Yeah. You know, the story doesn't have anything to do with the, the book or anything, but one time early on in Sabu's career, he was wrestling in Las Vegas. And I said, I'm going to go down and see Sabu wrestle. And he wrestled that particular night. He wrestled Jim Neidhart. It was kind of a independent type, you know, where they had some, always had some pretty good talent on these shows in Las Vegas. And so he's wrestling, and the match ends, and uh, he sets up a table, you know, and Neidhart's gone, he's gone. But Sabu just does his flip and lands through the table. And it's like, okay, that, you know, this was early, early table breaking, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's what I flew down here to see. And then <laughs> I just was very, very sad. Yeah. Because it's like, that's literally what he has to do every match, you know, otherwise people are going to go home not happy. And, uh, yeah, I, I made that trip to go down and, and I saw exactly what I wanted to see. But then it's like, oh, you know, what is it, what is his life going to be like, you know, when he's 60, you know. And one other story, I mentioned three. There's kind of... <laughs> Hopefully I have to swerve off this depressing story, but I have one more to tell you. Uh, Steve Rosano, who wrestled in uh, ECCW, uh, that British Columbia promotion, wrestled a lot on the West Coast and also got involved with the XPW, the, that hard, hardcore down in uh, uh, Los Angeles. Yes. Now, I had two different interviews with Steve. The first one was his early career and, and he started in APW in the Bay area and, uh, talk, you know, talked about his career. He wrestled in, in Portland after Don Owen and, and, and we went through just a, a normal interview. And then it became my understanding that essentially through a lot of injuries that he had gotten in the hardcore, he was really in bad shape. And this is probably about, 14, 15 years ago. So we did a second interview and 
he just went on and on and on and listed all the injuries that he'd had and he was he was his spine was caving in and and the CTE that he had and and it, I mean it was just it was just it was horrible the interview was just so depressing and we bring it around and I said Steve what you know what would you do differently and then it, and at the end he's like nothing <laughs> and I'm like I'm like no no Steve, wrong answer wrong Steve, answer what would you do differently he goes I get more offense in oh. <laughs> I get more offense in and so we went back here before the volume two came out and I got a hold of Steve and I said I, I just need an update last last time one of the last times that I visited with you when we did that second interview, you know, you were just hurting so bad and your health was so bad. He goes, Oh no, I'm doing much better. And then, uh, he goes, I'm at, at that point we did the second interview. His life was just, just surviving. And he goes, no, now I, I'm up and I go to the gym and I, you know, a much better quality of life. He, I don't know how many surgeries he had in between that time, but, I thought it was important just not not to leave the people with that depressing, depressing interview. And, and uh, uh, you know, 10, 12 years later, he's, he's doing, you know, somewhat better. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's uh, a way to pick it up at least, definitely for sure, and to show that other side of, of, uh, of what these guys go through. Yeah, yeah. So we have, I don't, I don't know how to transition off of that one, but we're going to try as we as we continue on tonight. Um, so Volume 1 came out in October of 2021. Uh, volume 2 came out in February of this year, 2022. And yeah. now you have a third project on the horizon. I've got to hear about this one. This one, I'm... I'm so excited about this one. This is a history of Portland wrestling. And, you know, the first two were interview style question and answer. So they were, they were done. They just needed to be compiled. And, you know, it's not my writing. It's, it's the words of the wrestlers. Yes. This, this book is, when I, first became aware of Portland wrestling, I was probably about seven, eight years old, and totally mesmerized, and most people say, yeah, but we grew out of that. I, I just never did. I never grew <laughs> out of it. I was absolutely mesmerized, and I quit, you know, even at eight years old, I'm finding the wrestling results in the newspaper, and I'm clipping them out and saving them. When I was nine years old, my family moved out of the Northwest. We moved to Ohio for a couple of years. And I made my grandma save the sports section. Oh, no way. From the paper for the entire year. So when I came back in the summertime, I would, I started clipping out all the, all the wrestling, That's so all the cool. wrestling lineups. Uh, the Portland paper listed on Saturday who was going to wrestle. And then on Sunday, the results. So I, I clipped out all those. When I was in college, I went into the library and I discovered that there was 
newspaper on microfilm, you know, way back into the 40s. And so, you know, I started researching that. Just I just I always felt that when I became aware of wrestling, it was like I I was starting to watch a movie right in the middle Mm -hmm. because I knew there were things that happened before. And I wanted to know what happened before. And so I, I did that research to find out all the different wrestlers who had been in the Northwest up, up to the 40s, or, you know, or, and even past since then. But um, so that was a, another brick in the, in the wall of, of my understanding. All, all this time I've, I've collected pictures because I wanted to see pictures of some of these wrestlers that I'd never you know, I just knew their names. You know, I wanted to see what they looked like. Also then, I, you know, wanted pictures of the wrestlers that were in the Northwest at the time. Another thing that, that I did was when I was 12, which would have been 1972, I started a notebook. And I'd list the, um, the Portland Wrestling Show. I'd list the matches. I'd list what they said on an interview. I was going to say, yeah. But I I tried to, any little story that had happened in the the, um, reunions, I got to be pretty good friends with a wrestler by the name of Bill Savage. And he wrestled through the early 60s. And I tried to remember a a story that he had told me, and and I'd insert that story. Or I'd take all these interviews that I had, and I'd take one little quote of something, and insert it into that into that appropriate spot or a story that the, a wrestler had told me. So the '60s go through that, and then you know, towards the end of the '60s, we get to the point where my memory can kick in and where I can look through the through the notebook and and you know, it, it, the '70s just as I'm reading through it, the '70s get way more interesting because I have way, a lot more memory. Yes, and I can I can tell it from more first 
And we just keep going in that manner, trying to slip in stories and trip, slip in anecdotes and and this wrestler left. There's a, there's a great one. Snuka, Jimmy Snuka leaves Portland. And then I, I would look up where he went and it's like, oh, six days later he was a Texas champion after he left Portland. You know, I tried to put every single piece of information and every single thing that I could remember tried to load it into this book. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the very, we do a chapter on Don Owen and uh, I had to enter in, in volume one, there's a, there's a short interview with Don Owen. And this is kind of a funny story. I, uh, when he had his 60th anniversary in 1985, I sent him a, this interview and I, very naively, I thought, I'll go down to Eugene and we'll walk around his ranch and we will visit and we'll, we'll be just the best of friends and uh, I will get this interview. So I, I call him up and I've been sending the bulletin to the sports arena. So I knew that he was getting my bulletin. So we finally make the, I make the phone call. His first comment is, you're the one who's sending, who's doing that goddamn bulletin. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, this is not going how I thought it would go. <laughs> and obviously, you know, at, at that point I was still naive, but then it's like, okay, I'm printing up 20 out of the 30 shows he's having a month, and people are seeing the results, and maybe the results are very similar each each show, and that's his, his point of view. But after he quit swearing, he ended up, he goes, mail that to me and then we'll see. And he, he completed it briefly, but he completed it and mailed it back to me. And so I have an interview with, with Don Owen. So in the, in the history of Portland, but we uh, try to uh, do a whole chapter on, on Don. And it's, it's when I really, when I started writing it, it's like, Everybody says, or the majority of the boys say, he was a good promoter, he was a fair payoff man, and he was pessimistic and grouchy at times. And it's like, that's what everybody says. And it's like, well, what else, what else do we know? What yeah. else can we find out about, about him? You know, when I would ask, I asked a lot of current wrestlers or wrestlers that are still, still with us, you know, did Don have a real understanding of the technical side of wrestling? Like, when guys come back, did he say, I want you to do more facials and work the camera more? You know, or, or you know, did he, he's a good promoter, but does he really, really understand? And I had a couple couple quotes through wrestlers that said, you know, he was a big fan and they tease him and he paid for his ticket. So it's like, I kind of got the impression that yes, being around it, he has an understanding, but um, I don't think Don did a lot of his booking. Um, there were certain things like Rick Drayson. Rick Drayson is most well known in Los Angeles and he was an actor too. He came up to Portland in about 1973. And they, they said, we want your finisher to be a headlock. And so his, 
They called him Rick Headlock Drayson. And he got, and I interviewed Rick, you know, many years ago. He goes, that was Don's idea. He thought that would really get me over and everybody helped. I go, God, that was so stupid. (laughs) I have memories of him, the crowd's counting, you know, he he headlock and he's grinding it 20 times, lets his opponent go and and pins him. That that was the finish. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, this will get you over. Okay. (laughs) At some point, and then every big wrestler, their finish was always the full Nelson. You can go down Billy Jack, Bull Ramos, you know, um, on and on and on. There's, there's five or six more Jesse Ventura. They all use the full Nelson. I know it was Don's idea. So, and then also I wanted to know, I asked a bunch of wrestlers just recently, did Don rib or did anybody rib Don? And finally I found one person who, who told the story um, of a rib, you know, a real gentle rib that that Don pulled, and a little bit of teasing that he did on somebody. But, but um, you know, for being around as long as he was, and for being around as many wrestlers, there are not a lot of details, um, you know, about exactly. There's lots of details about his brother Elton, mm. kind of like. A, not well liked person, but everybody's most people seem to like Don, which is probably why there's not many stories because usually the ones that people like don't have all the all the uh, crazy backstories, if you will. Uh, it, you know, unfortunately, that's you know, it's negativity is the easiest thing to talk about, right? So nobody wants right. to sit there and put over the positive person, right. Everybody loves to tell the story of um, at Thanksgiving time, he brought all the wrestlers turkeys from his farm, but he had midgets on the card, so he brought them Cornish game heads. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's funny. And we, we finish out the book with, um, you know, the commission in, in Oregon was a big story. You know, it was a, a political story, but really important in the late 80s. So we've documented exactly what that meant and, and what what happened. And uh, and then we finish up, it's called an epilogue section, where just tried to tie up any loose ends on, on different wrestlers who passed, you know, after Portland Wrestling. And, and my friend, was we, we worked on it, we printed off a copy, and, and we've been looking at it the last couple of days, and then we... We're doing our editing on it on any grammar and misspellings and and we did a lot of changing on the pictures. It's coming in at four hundred and twenty three pages. Oh wow. With over four hundred pictures. And I'm so excited about the pictures. You know, many are from my collection. Many are pictures that I've taken. I have a really good friend, Ken Hamlin, for forty years. He's been my friend and a lot of his pictures are featured. And then there's a, a person by the name of Lloyd Phillips, and he took pictures in Portland. And he's one of the best photographers that I've ever seen. His pictures from the early 70s are so sharp and so clear. And if people were around in the 70s, these pictures 
are just going to bring back the memories, you know, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I got, I have, I know I'm just rambling on and on. (laughs) No way. No, no, no. (laughs) I've got a really good photography story in Portland. The sports arena was set up. It was a, a bowling alley. So where the lanes were, that's where the ring sat. And then you'd walk away from the ring and there'd be two steps up just like any, any bowling alley in America. Yeah. And then they would have the, they called it the crow's nest and that's where the camera was, the announcer was and where they would do the interviews. So there was two cameras and they would be focusing on the ring. And then when the uh, match ended or a fall ended, the two cameramen would just swing their cameras over and then the wrestler would come up into the crow's nest area and they would do an interview. Well, I discovered, and the, the entire crow's nest is covered in chicken wire. All four sides. That so sounds dangerous. The, the best place to sit in the sports arena was up, up on the elevated two-step section just to the right of the crow's nest. And then when the wrestlers came up for an interview, I went up to the crow's nest, and now you're looking at the back of the cameraman and, but you're looking at the face of the wrestler as they're looking at the camera. You're, you are behind the cameraman on the floor and they're, they're elevated a little bit. So after the first time that I went, I, the second time I brought fingernail clippers and I clipped a little circle in the chicken wire where my camera went. <laughs> and so I got, you know, great pictures as the wrestlers were doing their interviews. It was funny, I was, I was telling my friend, who's Frank, the editor, I told him just the other day, I go, you know, the cameramen never had, when they swung their cameras around to do interviews, they, there was not an X, that, so every time it was different. Yes. They swing and you don't know exactly where they're, where they're gonna end up at. So I had to make a second, second circle <laughs> with my fingernail clippers. So if the first circle, I'm just looking at their back, the second circle maybe is, is a better view. So I'd see the finish come in and I'd immediately move to the, to the, the spot. And I'd have my, my wife, my girlfriend then at that time come and stand in front of the other. And sometimes we'd need to switch places because a lot of people would come and crowd right there because it was the best view. Of course. Yeah. But I ended up getting a lot of great great pictures because it was well lit right there. You know, they're on TV and, and uh, shooting from behind the camera. <laughs> That's funny. That's uh, anything you can do to make your, uh, make your life easier and, uh, and the shots better at that as well. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, do you have a rough ETA of when that one might be available? I know that you just had run a first uh, print, if I believe. Right. This, or a test I'll, print, I'll I should a, I should I'll preface that. story it. about, and this is where John Cosper is just fantastic. On the first volume, we had finished the editing, and my friend said, okay, I'm going to send it to, to Cosper. And, and at that point, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, I have no idea what the process is at this point. Um, you know, we're probably looking at two months. You know, I, I had no idea. And 
we sent it in one day. Two days later, I, I get up in the morning and I grab my iPad and uh, start to glance through it. And uh, it's like, oh my gosh, John Costner posts on Facebook that, you know, it's out. It's available now on Amazon. Jeez. Two days later, after we had finished, um, I just thought that was crazy. Uh, on volume two, this is, this is how easy he makes it. There was a match on a Saturday, and um, uh, Nick Wayne, who's a uh, rising, rising 16-year-old, the son of Buddy Wayne, he had a match on a Saturday, and we got a, a picture. We, we had done an interview with Buddy Wayne, who's, who's passed, but we also did a short interview with Nick Wayne to kind of tie it together. So he had a, a match on a Saturday, and we got a, got a captured a picture of, of his match. The book came out on a Wednesday, the, of a match that happened on Saturday. Come on. So, hats off to John Cosper, because <laughs> I think that's, that's incredible. That's unbelievable. I can't even get a damn podcast out every month almost, and you guys are turning around a book in three days. That's crazy. Your question is when when this is coming out. Um, we've we finished the edits, I believe, today, and um, my my friend is is taking it to the place where we get the single copies printed, so we can have one one final look, and then we'll send it to John. And so this is what the ninth or tenth. I would expect certainly certainly. By the end of May, it's going to be out, and I wouldn't be surprised wow. if it's out in a week. Just in time for uh, if people to get their copies for that uh, summer vacation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, that's tremendous. Um, Mike, this has been absolutely incredible, uh, our discussion tonight. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting this book. Uh, obviously, I will keep uh, listeners of this program updated as uh, as things get uh, released and, and there's a hard date, and I will let everybody know where it is available as well. But in terms of that, where can people get in touch with yourself? Um, I'll, I'll pass out my email address, and it's it's uh, my bulletin was was called Ring Around the Northwest, and the that's it's R A T N W. So if you if you forget those letters, it's ring, ring around the northwest at yahoo.com. And I will make sure that I have that in the show notes of this program. So when you guys are listening to this, uh, go ahead and click on the show notes, and you will see uh, Mike's email there, free and easy to get in touch with with him. And I know that there's there's a Twitter account as well for uh, the Excitement in the Air book. I think it's ran by your publisher, if I'm not mistaken. Right, my friend Frank, um, the address, hey, I'm so bad at technology, that's why I have the easy part. Uh, it's, it's hashtag excitement air. And again, that will also be available in the show notes today, so you, I, I highly encourage everybody to go ahead and, and uh, check that out as well, and uh, see about the uh, updates, and there's... Uh, you know, tons of cool pictures, some cool videos on there as well. So it just gives you more, more of a, a better appreciation of, of what you could expect in both volumes of Excitement in the Air. And then I know we didn't mention it, but I, there is apparently going to be a third volume. It's just 
you know, I can't stop now. It's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have I have probably enough for half a book from the bulletin, and so I'm I've been reaching out and, and doing uh, some current interviews or some interviews that have never been published before, and so I've I've done uh, the Grappler and Joey Jackson, and I'm scheduled to do uh, one with Mike Miller, who is really popular in the Northwest, and hopefully, uh, you know, I have a list of about 50 guys that I haven't reached out to, but, um, you know, hopefully three will be in the same same line as, as the first two. Very cool. Well, and again, as, uh, as details emerge of that one, I'll also uh, make sure that we... Uh, pass all of that information to uh, all the listeners of this program to keep in touch with uh, what you're up to in terms of the book. Uh, Mike, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Uh, we'd definitely be doing this again, probably when uh, when we have more details for the third book. And uh, I think I'm going to have to pick your brain and have you on one of the long-form episodes regarding a couple of the... Uh, couple of these subject matters that we have in regards to the flagship program of grappling with canada uh coming in the next few months yeah definitely that i i had a great time i really had a lot of fun it's fun fun talking about this well it's my pleasure and uh we'll we'll be chatting soon and uh i can't wait to to get my mitts on uh, on the new books thank you thank you so much I hope that everybody enjoyed my tremendous conversation with Mike Rogers regarding his projects, the Volume 1 and 2 of Excitement in the Air, as well as the upcoming project of Katie Bar the Door. Now, if Amazon is showing me things correctly, then my two volumes of Excitement in the Air are en route, and I'm excited to get my hands on those. I'm also really excited for when Katie Bar the Door comes out and uh, I can get my mitts on those ones as well. I'm starting to have an issue where I have a ton of books to read, but not a ton of time to do it. So I'm glad that uh, summer vacation is coming up and I can hopefully bang out a few of these tremendous wrestling books that I've been procuring over this last little while. If this is your first time to Rebelling with Canada, uh, once again, I just want to thank you for listening and hope that you will leave a five-star rating and a written review especially on Apple Podcasts. If you do that, then you will be able to hear yourself get a shout-out on the next available program of the flagship show, Grappling with Canada. Speaking of which, I hope you tune in on June 1st for the next Deep Dive episode of Grappling with Canada. I'm really, really looking forward to this one, and it ties into a Canadian sports league, which kicks off, if you will, in June. That's a little teaser for that one, and I hope that you will all enjoy this program and enjoy the program that we have on June 1st for everybody to listen to. Once again, I really do want to thank Mike Rogers. You can find all the ways to find what he is up to and the ways to contact him in the show notes of today's episode, as well as ways that you can donate to this program to help it all going. And as well, you can find links to the merchandise store. Thread, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com, listen to me talk, is where you can find all of the official merchandise for Grappling with Canada. And I want to make mention as well 
that all of the proceeds of the classic Grappling with Canada shirt logo with the Canadian flag, all the proceeds of that are going to charity. So support a good cause, grab yourself a t-shirt, and uh, support the show. And when you do, let me know that you do, and maybe I'll do something fun on social media with that as well. Don't forget that you can like this page on Facebook. Simply use the Facebook page option and find Grappling with Canada and go ahead and like the Facebook page. You can also come on in and join the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. There's been a ton of cool information uh, shared on there as well. So come on in and like the group and share some Canadian pro wrestling uh, history with all of us. So, for myself, the tax man, for my tremendous guest today, Mike, and to all of you, I will also leave you as I usually do with the flagship programs. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone. What do you want to say, L'Oreal? Bye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>